Good evening, everybody. Welcome tonight to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum here at the Harvard Kennedy School. Thanks for braving the snow. I see a lot of boots like mine. Uh, we're really glad to have all of you here. As we, as you all know, tonight, today actually, the kind of preliminary rounds and some of the Olympic events started, and tomorrow night, tomorrow is the opening ceremonies. And so we thought it'd be appropriate to have a conversation uh, about Russia, about the Olympics, about Snowden, uh, and a whole lot of topics uh, that have been in the news over the last couple of months. We've got an expert panel of, exp of folks here at Harvard uh, to talk about these issues. Uh, I'm most excited to introduce for the first time on our forum stage, Jill Doherty, uh, who is a Shorenstein Fellow at the Shorenstein Center for the Media, Politics, Press, I got a new title, Shorenstein Center on the Media, Pre Media Politics and Policy. Right, no longer press. Yeah, I can't do it as well. <laughs> but uh, Jill's a fellow here for the semester, and we're really glad to have her, and she's going to be tonight's moderator. She, for many years, was uh, covered foreign affairs for CNN and was based in Moscow for nine years. So she's an expert herself, and I'm sure will contribute to the conversation. So to please join me in welcoming Jill. Strength. Uh, let's see, everybody can hear. I hear a little bounce of the sound, but I think we're okay. Um, I am very excited to be doing this because I think the timing couldn't be better. As Trey mentioned, the Olympics in Sochi will be beginning, they're beginning right now, but the opening ceremony will be uh, tomorrow, Friday night, uh, broadcast. You can, obviously, it will be streamed, you can see it live. Billions of people around the world are going to watch that, and I think that it's going to be a very important moment because there will be a lot of messaging coming out from that opening ceremony. And what better than three true experts on Russia, and I'm very, I'm really dying to hear what you're going to say about all of this. We're going to try to get into a lot of different parts, different aspects of Sochi and the situation in Russia right now. Uh, essentially, we're going to have a conversation here among us for about 30 minutes, and then we will open it up to questions. So I'm sure you're going to have a lot of a lot of good questions. You have, I believe, some bios of the participants, but just very briefly, from the end, Simon Sarajan, he's a fellow assistant director at the, on the Initiative to Prevent Nuclear Terrorism at the Belfer Center right here at, the, uh, at Harvard. He's an expert in arms control security and many other things. Um, interestingly, he worked for, as deputy editor of the Moscow Times and Moscow correspondent for Defense News, so also a journalist. And he covered, it was in charge of the coverage actually, uh, two major terrorism incidents in Russia, Beslan and the Dubrovka uh, theater hostage crisis in 2002. Then in the middle, we have Alexandra, Dr. Alexandra Vakru. She is the executive director of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies here at Harvard. And she's also with the working group on the future of US-Russian relations, which is a very, you might want to Google it, check it out, very high level uh, means of discussing the uh, leading Americans and Russians, discussing the thorniest issues in the relationship between the two countries. And then finally, last but not least, we have Brigadier General Kevin Ryan. And he is retired from the Army. He is uh, Director, Defense and Intelligence Projects, also at the Belfer Center. Uh, we met in Moscow when he was at the embassy as a defense attache. He is truly an expert in missile defense and uh, and defense issues in general. So without uh, getting going too far into this, I want to jump right in with security. That is, of course, as we're looking at Sochi, there has been a lot written about it, a lot out there in the blogosphere about whether these games will be safe. And Simon, I'd like to start with you. Can Vladimir Putin guarantee that these games will be as safe as games generally have been in other countries? Well, I'd like to quote um, former US presidential candidate Mitt Romney who commenting on the security in Sochi said there's no such thing as 100% security. And I'd say he's right. Nobody can guarantee there will be no terrorist attacks 
in the greater Sochi area. But I'd say Russia has made a tremendous effort to make sure that doesn't happen. And I'm not talking only about the so-called ring of security or steel ring uh, in the area, which is about 60 miles long, 35 miles wide, where uh, participants and, and visitors reside. I'm talking about the general effort, which includes intensification of effort uh, to keep the insurgents on the run in the North Caucasus, um, multi-agency response, which includes the Ministry of Defense, the Federal Security Service, the Interior Ministry, the Ministry for Emergency Situations. So there's a 70,000 strong grouping. 70,000 forces, personnel. combined forces in the area. That's seven times more than in Vancouver. Hmm. It's also three times less than in Beijing. <laughs> but less it's three times less than during the Beijing Olympic Games. Uh, there were about 100,000 uh, police officers and about 110,000 soldiers deployed for the games in Beijing, as far as I know from open sources. So I'd say uh, this, and given all the hardware in the area, air defense systems, anti-sabotage boats, even Moskva missile cruise carrier is there, cruiser, excuse me. I'd say it's a pretty uh, good effort to prevent, but again, Nobody has a crystal ball, and nobody can give you 100% guarantee. Mm -hmm. Kevin, uh, Kevin <laughs> should be first names. Um, Kevin, tell us about the, uh, the United States, the Pentagon, the State Department, as they look at the White House, as they look at this right now. Obviously, there, uh, some Americans have said they are not going because their security is, is paramount. They are nervous about that. I was looking at some... Um, uh, oh, yes. Uh, the Pew Research Center said that 44% of, of the people that they question in the United States think it's a bad decision to hold the games in Russia, 44%. 32% thought it was good. And of the people who think it's bad, 62% cite security. And I think significantly only 4% cited LGBT issues, which have been talked about a lot, 4%. So overwhelmingly, people are worried about security. As the US government looks at this, how worried are they? So I, I think there is a concern in the US government. And I think part of the perception that's uh, prevalent in our country about the security issue is a result of the fact that, that uh, parts of the government that are normally invited in by foreign countries to help with security, help planning, uh, this would be the FBI, it would be um, uh, the CIA, it would be even the military itself. They have not had that kind of a uh, cooperative relationship that they had with other countries. For example, China, which is a country that most of us consider to be an adversary in many ways, uh, was very cooperative on the Olympics and allowed us to set up uh, command centers and to bring in uh, the things that we uh, th that we could add to their security, and they, they leveraged us, and they and they used um, our our help, and that I think generated a positive kind of attitude, at least in the government, which maybe permeated out from there into uh, into the press and to the uh, people that uh, came. But that has been uh, that's not been there for uh, these Olympics, and. And that I get from, uh, from my uh, colleagues back in the Defense Department, uh, from uh, contacts in the State Department and within the intelligence community. Uh, uh, you know, it's not a comment that the Russians can't take care of their own security. That's, that's not the point. But everybody can use help. And, and uh, uh, in this case, uh, they have been uh, largely shut out. So I think that. Why? Uh, well, uh, my, my guess is that it's a combination of, of uh, both uh, pride on, on the part of uh, Russian leadership and a little bit of paranoia on the part of the Russian leadership, which are not things that are foreign to American leaders either. Uh, so uh, I, don't, I don't mean to say that they are uh, more prideful and more paranoia than, than we are, or paranoid than, than we are, but 
But I think if, if I had to pick two things, I, they would be very human factors. Hmm. Alexandra, why, why Sochi? What, what is Putin trying to do with these Olympics? Is it a domestic, obviously it's international, but what's going on internally in Russia that would make these games extremely important for him? Well, I think they're, they're very important for him in terms of keeping up this image of being extremely powerful, of being a good manager, of being able to host magnificent Olympics, not just Olympics, but Winter Olympics in a subtropical climate, um, and making it kind of the biggest, best Olympics ever, ever. And this shows to the international audience that Russia remains a great power, capable of great feats of both imagination and, uh, and implementation. But also for the domestic audience, it has required a huge mobilization of financial resources, of the political elite, of the economic elites, or so-called oligarchs. All of these people had to be mobilized to help him implement this vision. And it demonstrates to those elites that he is very much in charge, that he can make big things happen, even in a country that may have had a reputation for complexity or problems in implementation. So it does a lot to really booster his image, boost, boost his image both at home and abroad. You know, there's a lot of negative, obviously, just go onto the web, a lot of negative in, uh, commentary, and in fact, there's a lot of mockery, really, of um, you know, bathrooms, et cetera. But in, within Russia, do we have an idea of how Russians look at the games? I think for the most part, they're quite proud of what's happening. There's a history of being extremely supportive of athletic prowess and achievements. Um, I think they expect that they're going to do very well at these games, um, perhaps better than they have at the other Olympics, and that will be very important for them. And uh, I think that there's also some resentment over the fact that there is this kind of mockery going on with hashtag Sochi problems and things like that, and that it's really seen as a bit unfair to be casting this negative light over Olympics that haven't even started. So to some extent, there is a little bit of negative coverage within the Russian press, but for the most part, I think the attitude is, you know, just you wait until we have this opening ceremony, like nothing you've seen before, and wait until you see we win the medals, and then we'll see kind of who's the best. <laughs> Simone, let me ask you something about the threat, where the threat is coming from, because, you know, there have been reports about uh, the terrorist leader Doku Umara, uh, who used to be, I guess you'd call him separatist, you know, slash terrorist, and now he says he's kind of part of Al-Qaeda to a certain extent. If, who, where is this threat coming from? Is it a homegrown threat? Is it, is it Al-Qaeda? Is it international terrorism? Combination of both, what? Um, first of all, I'd like to point out that Russia is not really hoping to win the Olympics. It is hoping to be fourth or fifth with about nine gold medals, mm -hmm. which is three times more than doing Vancouver, but it's aiming low. In terms of uh, the threat, the threat is homegrown primarily. In the 90s, you could talk about a significant component of uh, foreign jihadists in the North Caucasus. Since then, they've uh, moved on to, so to say, greener pastures. <laughs> One is Syria, for example. I won't associate Doku Umarov with Al-Qaeda. He has proclaimed his goal to be establishment of a caliphate in the North Caucasus and in the Muslim regions of Russia. But he has never said, I'm a member of Al-Qaeda, although he has welcomed the lieutenants and emissars from this organization. But the problem is that he's not the only threat. By the way, we don't even know whether he's alive. <laughs> There's a very motley, so to say, assortment of people who practice political violence in Russia. It goes from Russian ultranationalists, which constitute a very minor part of the problem, to insurgents in the North Caucasus who are lone wolves of avenging abuses by authorities, Islamists who uh, might or might not be part of Omarov's Caucasus Emirate, militias that report to clan leaders and do this for money or power, you could go on, the list could be very long. So this poses the problem. You don't know what the threat is because it's represented by so many different actors. Mm -hmm. And therefore you cannot 
influence their motivation. All you could do is try to find them and neutralize them. And it's difficult, uh, especially given the proximity um, of Sochi. Sochi is only 300 miles away from Chechnya, uh, Kabardino-Balkaria and Chechnya, and about you know, 360 miles away from Dagestan, which is now the hotbed. It's not Chechnya any longer. It's Dagestan and Ingushetia where you see most political violence. My calculations show Dagestan accounts for one quarter of all political violence in Russia in the mm -hmm. past 10 years. And Dagestan, of course, we have to jump in because we're in Boston, and that is where uh, the uh, terrorists who carried out the attack on the marathon uh, came from. Essentially, their families came from Dagestan. Correct? Well, <coughs> you could say they've come from Kyrgyzstan because they live from Kyrgyzstan. True, but their father is Chechen, mm -hmm. so they lived there. I think for it, a while. It proposes a problem, but I agree that Dagestan is is a big part of the problem, and there haven't been a single suicide bomber from Chechnya for years, mm. whereas half of them, so-called black widows, as they call them, although not all of them are widows, are from Dagestan. To stop someone who's bent on killing himself or herself in the act of political violence, it's very hard. So, you know, security perimeter in Sochi can hold, but what about places in the greater Sochi, which is the second longest city in Europe. It stretches mm -hmm. along the coastline. What about areas outside that? Would people not panic if someone, God forbid, attacks somewhere outside the security perimeter? They would panic. In fact, if, they, if there were an attack, let's say in Moscow, mm -hmm. St. Petersburg, some of the bigger cities, Alexander, what, if, if that happened, and of course we hope that it won't, what would that do to the image of Vladimir Putin? Well, I, I think to some extent it would be seen as something that could happen, unfortunately, to almost any leader at the same time as the Olympics. I think, however, given how much emphasis Putin has made to say that these, these Olympics are safe, that Russia has the security problem under control, it would be quite devastating, uh, if only because it would also distract attention from the Olympics, which are really meant to be a, a jewel in the crown uh, for him and for what he's accomplished. So I think it would be, it would be very difficult. They would try and shift attention back onto the Olympics, but it would create quite a, uh, a panic, I think, within the Olympic community and the people trying to control what's happening there. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm interested in the messaging. Um, that's one of the things that I'm uh, looking at in my work uh, here, the Russian media, et cetera. And the, the uh, idea that Vladimir Putin is trying to get across about his country, which is, yes, we may have been on our heels after the end of the Soviet Union, but we're back, uh, we're in the game, we can do things in Syria, we can solve problems in Iran. Uh, we are a force to be reckoned with. And again, this opening ceremony, I think, is going to be really significant in that. Um, Kevin, what do you make of that? I mean, the, let's say where Vladimir Putin, how Vladimir Putin wants to pre present Russia and how the United States looks at that. I'll give you just one quick note on that. Um, I was reading a quote by Vladimir Putin, the essence of which was uh, th that the West essentially really wants Russia on its knees. That's the ultimate aim of all Western policy and uh, wants it to give up its resources and its influence around the world. Uh, in other words, a zero-sum game. How do, how do they... How does the, the White House look at this constant reference to the zero sum and you're trying to subdue us again? Right. I, I think it's interesting, isn't it, that in a place like the Kennedy School where we're supposed to study all these uh, uh, objective and uh, large strategic reasons and, and, and uh, issues that are supposed to be motivating countries to do this or that, and, and in the end, uh, sometimes we're confronted with the fact that these are just people interacting with people and it can get very personal and especially if you have a country that's as highly as centralized uh, in its both its history but in its current state as Russia. Um, so uh, I'll give you one example and this is, uh, this is a rumor but um, uh, my uh, contacts in the U.S. government say that their counterparts in the Russian government have, have basically been told that uh, Putin has 
told his cabinet members that until he gets his one-on-one -on -one meeting with Obama, not, not just these pull asides at the uh, you know, so, uh, D8 and so on, but until he gets his summit with Obama, no other uh, cabinet members or agencies are supposed to get out in front of him. So, so if that rumor is true, then what you, what you have is an entire apparatus that is actively working to, to either keep the status quo or, or roll back <coughs> based, on, based on the guidance of, of the senior leader. You know, this might be something that you 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 could say you would say would only be in a Hollywood movie, but I actually believe it. I, I think mm. it is it's emblematic of his style. It's emblematic of of the structure that they have set up for leadership in Russia, and and so if they're playing a very personalized uh, uh, game uh, of a relationship, it's hard not it's hard not to take it that way here too. Mm. I think Americans and the leadership, uh, I think they devolve to the same. Uh, the same kind of attitude, they, they take it personal. Alexander, what do you think about that? I mean, does that jibe with your understanding of who Vladimir Putin is, how he acts, how he leads? Well, looking, looking in terms of the things that have happened in U.S.-Russia relations over the past um, you know, six or seven years, certainly, what you see is, is a pattern of the Russians um, sort of aggrieved that they're not being taken as America's equal partner. And I think it's fair to say that, that they don't see themselves as being kind of in the category of smaller countries. So you have the US, you have the China, and then you have important European countries and Russia. And the Russians have, have told me in some of these working group meetings that you know Germany, France, like these are not on the same level as Russia. Mm -hmm. right? They really see themselves as being one of the top two or three countries. And because the United States isn't going to recognize that, you know, for strategic and, and kind of obvious um, geopolitical reasons, there's this constant sense of being aggrieved that we are not recognizing them for who they are, and therefore they are not going to step to forward in order to reach common policy that's even in their own common interest in some cases. Mm. They just don't want to cooperate if they're treated as a junior partner. Mm -hmm. Simone, put on your journalist cap, if you would, if you were covering the Sochi Olympics as a journalist back in Moscow, and you wanted to evaluate how, they, how successful they will be in achieving the goals that Vladimir Putin has, what would you be looking for? What are the, the signposts for success of the games? And I don't mean just winning gold medals. Well, <coughs> immediately um, you could see where this Olympics is different from the predecessors. If I were uh, an editor, I'd say, look at what the government is pointing out, look what the critics are pointing out, and look what you see yourself. The government is pointing out that a record number of heads of states are coming, <laughs> 60 heads of state, including 44 will be attending the ceremony. The government is pointing out that they've added several more sports events, that they've added 12 countries are going to, for the first time ever, send their athletes. So there are many number ones they can list. The critics, of course, point out that this is the most expensive Olympics ever and that a significant part must have been stolen. Otherwise, it wouldn't cost $8 billion to build a road that could be otherwise covered with uh, mink furs, as a <laughs> Russian journalist <laughs> calculated. And then the reality on the ground. But I would also urge them to look beyond the Olympics and see what kind of legacy. And legacy could be very positive. I mean, treat it as sunken costs. That money has already been spent. There's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. You can't sue the government and say, return this money back to your budget. There's an excellent array of sports facilities, affordable accommodation, which Russia lacks, which has always lacked three-star hotels. And there's a hope that this will be part of the whole North Caucasian tourist cluster that is supposed to generate 160,000 jobs and attract almost 4 million tourists annually. Is that a positive in the, in the scorecard? I'd say yes. So I'd urge everyone to take longer-term view beyond the obvious and serious problems. Mm -hmm. um, Kevin, and maybe this is a, a good question for everybody, but 
you know, why Sochi? It, it is closer to Tehran, I believe, Simone, correct me if I'm wrong, closer to Tehran than it is to Moscow. Mm -hmm. It's down, it, it, it has <laughs> palm trees, who would know? Um, it's not Siberia. Um, why Sochi? What, well, what, what it has it? a unique uh, ecosystem, so it does have the snow. It, it, it's kind of like uh, if you were in California or Oregon and you said, you know, you can go from the, from the coast up to ski in the mountains. You can do that. Uh, and, uh, if the weather's cooperating, everything's wonderful, uh, it, it will be a real treat to see the, the differences between along the water and, and up in the mountains. So in, in that regard, uh, it's, it's not a bad choice. In another uh, instance, uh, Sochi is uh, a famous, uh, for Russia, it is a famous place for the rich and famous to be. And I think uh, Putin, my understanding is Putin kind of considers it his, his town, his uh, pet uh, project, and, and uh, creating, uh, highlighting Sochi and, and adding to its uh, luster is, uh, is in keeping with maybe with uh, Putin's long-term plan. So, yeah, it's, it's not a bad choice. It, it could be horrible if the weather doesn't cooperate, but, mm -hmm. but I think it's going to turn out to be not a bad choice. Is there more to it, Alexander? Well, I've heard that a lot of it has to do with the fact that he really fell in love with the place. Kind of in the early years of his presidency, he would go there to relax, and uh, a lot of people kind of looked out on the mountains and said, boy, it'd be great to have a ski resort right here. And things sort of developed from there. It became something that seemed like a great idea. You do have the mountains, um, and uh, the mountains are pretty high <laughs> compared to a lot of other parts of Russia. So it's hard to imagine a better place in Russia for these Olympics. Um, although there are perhaps mitigating geographical factors, I don't think that that really was ever a serious consideration. Simone, I think there, there's also regional um, development, I guess you could say, an area that uh, except for Sochi, really doesn't have a lot of infrastructure, has been kind of left behind. What, what else would you say? Why picking, why not go to Siberia? Well, I would just read what President Putin has said. And he has actually said that with these games, we will prove that North Caucasus is an attractive area for tourism, that the insurgency is diminishing in the North Caucasus, and therefore, this is my choice. So to show the whole world that he is, North Caucasus is firmly under control, insurgents on the run, and to also attract tourists, because let's face it, Sochi is a subtropical city, and I'd say it's very courageous decision to hold Olympics there. Mm -hmm. But if you were to develop a tourist cluster in Krasnoyarsk, where the slopes are very good and there's plenty of snow all the time, whereas it was raining this day, in Sochi in 2000, last year. But who is going to travel to Krasnoyarsk? I mean, Krasnoyarsk is, I think, 2,000 miles away from Moscow. So it will take any European with money, probably, I don't know, six hours to fly there. Sochi is only 1,000 miles away from Moscow and within reach of most uh, middle-class stories from Europe. So these this three factors matter. The need to show that Russia is capable of pulling off events like this in an area which has been branded as you know, insurgency infested, that, not, that terrorism is diminishing and the North Caucasus is under control, but also to attract tourists and to turn Sochi into a whole year resort, not just summer, but winter. You know, we're going to have some questions. I, I really do want to get to those, but I, I have one last question, maybe Alexander, with your breath of looking at all of this, so there's kind of a counter narrative that's coming out, which is, can Russia get a fair shake? You know, there's been so much criticism, so much mockery, so much negativity. Can they really get a fair shake in the media or, of course, the Twitter land is not controllable. <laughs> you can't just tell it what to do. But it, truly, is, is Russia getting a fair shake in terms of the coverage and the way this is being depicted? Well, I think we need to give it a couple days to know how the coverage is really going to turn. And, and I suspect that most people are going to be counting on the opening ceremony and how smoothly the first couple days go off to really make a judgment. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a great deal of frustration right now on the Russian side 
at how the message has kind of escaped them, how they've had so much um, experience in keeping the domestic media, at least the, the uh, television media, kind of under wraps mm -hmm. and having more or less compliant journalism in all of the places that are broadcast to most of the population. And here there's a situation where they really cannot control what's going out in the media. And I, I suspect that that would be a great source of frustration, although as, as uh, Simeon pointed out before we started, there is a lot on the Russian internet about the corruption stories, the dog stories, all of these things do exist for people who want to look for them um, in Russia. So uh, I think we have to wait and see, but um, I think it must be, be very irritating. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd, uh, are we ready to get some questions, Carrie? Are the microphones are working and questions are all set? Um, I'll just give our usual warning here, um, Q&A guidelines. Please identify yourself, your affiliation. Um, one brief question, which should end in a question mark. Um, no speeches, you know, lobbying, pontificating. Get, you know, some good questions. And, and again, a question mark at the end of it. Thank you, let's begin. Hi, hi there. Uh, my name is Sita Gofard. I'm a, a junior at the college, and, and thank you all so much for uh, sharing your insights um, into what will be a, a really fascinating couple of weeks ahead, I guess. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, the, the effect that, um, I guess, the title of this, of this forum, From Snowden to Sochi, what effect that you think the, this, the, the whole the, the scandal, the, the, the media issue that, um, that Edward Snowden being essentially um, you know, I guess a fugitive in Russia, uh, an asylum seeker in Russia, who will have, um, you know, during this Olympic phase um, and in its overall relationship with the U.S. Um, if you could uh, comment on what your thoughts are about that. Do you have one person that you would like um, to answer? Or anyone who feels best suited to answer that okay. question, I guess. Kevin, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, so uh, Snowden uh, is more of a symptom that, than a cause in my mind. Uh, he, he. Uh, He's not the reason that Obama and Putin are have such a frosty relationship, but he's just another example of how their frosty relationship is uh, plays out on the stage. Um, I certainly, he doesn't help at this point in terms of uh, resolving that relationship. Uh, I uh, just since we brought up Snowden, it, I don't think that uh, uh, he is. Uh, giving Russia secrets. I think he gave all his secrets to journalists. <laughs> Maybe present company accepted. <laughs> and, uh, um, and so uh, I think the Russians are learning about these revelations the same day we are in the Guardian or the New York Times. So uh, I don't think he's a, uh, I don't think he's a, a a re if everything else were ready to go to a better relationship or to a, a summit, I don't think he alone would be the reason not not to do that. Um, you know, I, maybe unless somebody has a burning desire to answer that, maybe we just get some more questions. I'm really eager to hear what people have on their minds, sir. Thank you. My name is uh, Eli Harrington, and I work at World Boston and. I was actually in the Beijing Olympics and was there for a few months before working with some journalists. So my question is the Olympics are always a great opportunity to sort of crack down on human rights in the name of security. I'm wondering on the other side, besides LGBT issues, what domestic Russian human rights or, or other sort of smaller political issues might come to the stage uh, during this Olympics and what prospect do they have for being successful? Uh, considering that they will be diminishing uh, Mr. Putin's luster. And I guess I would uh, send that to Alexandra and, and Simone if you could jump in as well. Thank you. Um, well, it's true that, that Putin has been very uh, thoughtful about what he's going to do about potential human rights problems before the Olympics, mostly in terms of trying to diminish the ones that he thinks are manageable. And I would point to the release of a lot of political prisoners from Hadarkovsky to the women from Pussy Riot, a lot of other political prisoners. He just let them go in order to avoid that as an irritant. Um, in terms of the LGBT rights, I mean, I think that Putin doesn't really see it as a significant problem. It's, it's again, irritating that they're bringing it up at the Olympics and there will surely be some rainbows at the opening ceremony and things like that. But frankly, it's so popular of you in Russia that it really costs him very little 
to, to say those sorts of things. And people that I've talked to in, in the regions, they basically think it's a great thing that he's taken a stand on traditional values. Um, in terms of, of other human rights issues, I really wouldn't expect them, um, fortunately or unfortunately, to get much play during the Olympics. Um, again, because the Olympics themselves have so much momentum in terms of the sporting events, the stories of the athletes, and all of these kind of color stories, um, I suspect that we've already seen most of what's going to come out. And as far as I can tell, maybe Simeon has a different view, but I don't see them getting that much traction in terms of weighting down the, the overall attempt to make the Olympics make Russia look good. Simeon? I agree. <laughs> Over 70% of Russians support Putin's decision to sign this bill into law, banning so-called gay propaganda among juniors. Uh, so this is not going to be an issue, at least uh, domestically. Now, of course, the issues that are more important to Russian public for a number of reasons are playing out, and one of them is damage to the environment. Mm -hmm. We know that a number of uh, environmental activists in the area have, have been investigated and even convicted uh, just because they highlighted the damage to the environment. And I think it's a big issue and it's going to continue during the Olympics, even though you won't hear much because the area which is designated for mass protests, which by the way communists already use, <laughs> is outside the focus of international media. But this issue will not go away. People feel strong about environment and uh, whether it's during Olympics or beyond Olympics, they are going to continue to champion this cause. And I think it's very good. It's very relevant for Russia. Thank you. Yes. Hi, my name is Holly and I'm a junior at the college. Uh, I think we've all heard about the deficiencies in infrastructure and accommodations uh, that people have noticed over the past week. Um, but I'm just wondering, in, in the course of the most expensive Olympics in history, how is it that Russia spent so much money building, um, you know, buses for tours and expensive facilities for athletics and overlooked some of the most basic infrastructure? Uh, that's an excellent question. In fact, we were discussing that just before this began. Um, and it plays into, I think, an unfortunate narrative about Russia and shoddy construction. But Kevin, why don't you tackle that? I will, but only if you'll agree to use some of your nine years of living in that country <laughs> to tell us some of your stories. Actually, we could go back to when I was a student in uh, Leningrad <laughs> to uh, really get into the infrastructure <laughs> at that point. Uh, but no, Kevin, you please. Yeah. You please I, I, used to, I used to tell people that I knew that Russia uh, looks like I built it, you know, so I'm not really a good construction person. I, I don't know how to tile a bathroom. I don't know how to build stairs. But if I had to do it, that's how a lot of Russia would look today. Um, I, I think, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a lack of, of, um, of these skills that really are still a, 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 a product of the, the uh, communist days that, that's still with us uh, to some degree. Uh, well, you can see the, 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 uh, the good uh, progress they made when when uh, Russians have proper training, uh, get get uh, get the skills that that uh, that they need, and then they go and and build something, then you can actually see something that's that's uh, fantastic. Uh, if if you've been to Russia and looked at their subway system, and seen these museums, tra uh, subway stops, you know, with they're, they're they're magnificent. They were built at the early parts of of the Soviet Union when the, when the people still had these skills. Uh, and then if you look at, at a current, you know, a later day a metro stop, and you see a huge difference. I mean, just little things like that are signs of, I think it's a, it's a societal kind of problem. So why has that happened? That you can spend, you can drain a whole bottle of vodka <laughs> at, the, at the kitchen table trying to talk about that, I think. So. I don't want to belabor this, but Simone, I thought I saw you shaking your head. Did that mean that you agree or you disagree? I think uh, Kevin is a wonderful builder. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to his house, it's magnificent. <laughs> I think the problem is just bad management. And bad management is essentially a result of lack of competition. When contracts are awarded on basis of loyalties and so on and so on, 
those who win them, they have no incentive to deliver. So therefore, the quality suffers. But I put things into a perspective, and um, there have been positive reviews of what has been done. An International Olympic uh, Committee member, uh, by the last name Kasper, <laughs> said that it would take uh, any other European city 150 years to build what Russia built in Sochi for the Olympics in six years. So, you know, there are always two sides to the story. Good point. Yes, sir. You've been patiently waiting. Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Max Liebeskin. I'm a freshman at the college and a member of the JFK Junior Forum. And since you've been talking a lot about the Olympics, I'll maybe shift this question a little bit closer to the Snowden side of the issue. Uh, and my, my question is more generally about Russian foreign policy. Obviously, a lot of what's been in the news recently have been the negotiations that the United States and Russia and Syria are involved in about the potential for a transitional government in Syria. And so my question is, what do all of you see as the driving force or the underlying motive of Russia's policy on the Syria issue and related issues in the Middle East? Um, Alexander, can you tackle that? I would ask Kevin, actually, to tackle that. Okay. <laughs> so I, I have a... Um, I'll point out something that I think most of us miss uh, because we're not, it's not that we don't think about Russia or, know Ru or try to know Russia, but it's because we don't understand the Muslim uh, and the Islamic uh, situation. So think about Sunni and Shia, and then think about Russia's uh, problems in the Caucasus. So all of Russia's Islamic uh, fundamentalist problems are Sunni or origin. Sunni is the problem in the Russian eyes, not Shia. So, so then, w what would you expect Russia's attitude to be toward Shia-dominated Iran? It's okay, you're not hurting me, and that's what their attitude is. What should it be toward Saudi Arabia, which is the, the origin of the Sunni? Should be should be bad, and that's the way it is. Syria is a place where the Sunni-Shia battle is 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 playing out. So whose side is Russia on? Well, people, experts would say, well, the Assad, they're not really Shia, they're, they're something, but they're, but they're aligned with the Shia, and they're against the Sunni. I mean, it, it, in some respects, it's as simple as that. Now, there are a lot of other complicating factors, and there, and there are arms sales, and there's uh, uh, port facilities, and there's everything else, but to my mind, that, to my mind, that is a, uh, a significant factor that, uh, influences Russia's uh, position on what's going on in Syria. And I ask Simone and Simon? Alexander. I'd say <clears throat> the other issue to point out is that Russia, as a principle, is opposed to any unlawful change of regime. Mm -hmm. It has to be a certain procedure has to be followed. You cannot just hold a revolution and unseat the government because it sets a dangerous precedent former Soviet Union, which Russia seeks uh, to have uh, the crucial influence on. Therefore, Russia is not married to the idea of keeping Assad in power, but it wants that whatever happens is done in a proper manner, whether it's elections or negotiations. Mm -hmm. Also, Assad's government is a major buyer of Russian equipment. And it's not only just arms, it's also cars. I mean, how many countries buy Russian cars? How many Russians drive cars, Russian-made cars in Russia? Syrians buy them. If you want to keep your economy diversified from oil and gas, which dominate the GDP, you'd want buyers like uh, Assad to buy arms, airliners, and cars from you. Now, I'd also point out that Assad is an ally of Iran. And Russia's foreign policy specifically says Russia seeks to play the balancing role. If Syria switches sides, so to say, Iran is weakened. The balance of power in the region is undermined. And therefore, Russia finds itself without a viable ally to deter influence of external stakeholders in the region. Really um, excellent points all. Um, is there somebody up at that microphone? Yes, okay, uh, please. Hi, my name is Ray, and I work at GE here. And my question is more about Ukraine. Um, when Yunukovych uh, started to lose control and lost Russian aid, that was kind of obvious. But what, 
kind of perplexed me was Russia's reaction today when they said, well, it's the Americans who are funding the protesters and they're giving them arms. And I expect that in the Middle East. I didn't expect that in Russia. What, what could, what, what, where, is Russia still viewing America as the demagogue to be uh, sort of overcome all the time? Or is that, where did that come from? Yeah. Uh, this, this gets <laughs> in, this would be great to talk about. Be briefly, obviously we're into the color revolutions. Um, I, I covered actually uh, the orange revolution in Ukraine, the rose revolution in, uh, in Tbilisi, Georgia. And there is fear, we can talk about this more, about, that the Russians really do believe on a number of levels that the US is trying to foment color revolutions uh, in the former Soviet space. Uh, but Kevin, I heard a big yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you, can't, you, you it's, it's, not, uh, it's not rocket surgery, right? It's, uh, <laughs> it, they, they, uh, they see that as a plan. There, there are hints of it in American policy, right? We want uh, the, rev the Rose Revolution. We want the Orange Revolution. We want uh, a pro-Western government in the Ukraine. So that's reflected in how we talk and how we act and who we support and how we spend our money abroad. So uh, are we the reason that, that, that all these people are upset in the Ukraine? No, that's, that's ridiculous. But we, we certainly support that perspective or that point of view uh, of, the, of, this, of these groups. And so therefore, uh, Russian leaders either uh, sincerely believe that we're actually doing this, and they could be believing that, or, or they, uh, they use it as an excuse uh, to say, you know, that's why uh, uh, the people of Ukraine should not go this direction because it's actually just an idea from the West. Uh, you know, they, they saw what happened in all these countries. And then uh, one of the turning points was in Uzbekistan when, when you had another kind of uh, pro-Western government heading that direction. And, and then there were, uh, there were um, some uprisings and, and the Russian leaders said, you need to squash that. The only way to save your skin and not end up like uh, the guys in uh, Georgia or in the Bal Baltics or somewhere else out of power is if you, don't, if you come in hard. So violence is how you uh, squash it. And I think that's the way Putin has saw it today. Sir, do you have a question up there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. My name is Jacob. I'm a sophomore at the college. And maybe this is not as a specific of a question, but I'm, I'm curious. You sort of touched on um, how personal the Olympics are to Putin. And I'm curious what impact Obama's sort of snub of announcing that he wasn't going to attend the games and was, you know, send all of these athletes. I mean, and maybe, I don't know if the LGBT factor of having, L you know, openly LGBT athletes attend, but... Um, mainly the fact that President Obama decided not to attend the games in Sochi has on either Putin's perspective or on sort of how it plays out in the Russian media. Is there any particular person? I can think of one sitting in the middle. <laughs> Always nice. Would you like to take that? Yeah, I, I don't think that the, um, the Russians certainly would not have appreciated the fact that Obama isn't coming. But if he had come, it would have been taken as a signal that the whole LGBT thing was just not that significant in the US either, right? That the Russians ultimately know what's important and they know what's not important. And Obama understood that this was not worth kind of offending Putin over. Uh, and it, it kind of ties into this, um, to what Kevin was saying and also the approach that the Russians have had, which is that they, they don't necessarily respond to compromise in the way that we would expect. In other words, if, if someone compromises on some issues, oftentimes they see that as a weakness and then press for more. Whereas one would expect that if you have a compromise, then you get a compromise in return. And I think the, the history, especially of the past two years of, of US-Russia relations when the reset has really faltered, have shown that in fact the, the compromise approach did not really work well with the Russians. That to some extent they really respect strength and strength of convictions. And even though they might disagree with Obama that LGBT rights are important, on some level, they would respect him more for not coming than for coming and saying that he's coming even though he's upset about the, the LGBT issue. Hmm. Yes. Is it, it, uh, are you standing at the mic? Did you have a question? Yes, please. <laughs> I just thought you would ask. <laughs> no, uh, thank you. Uh -huh. I'm Ksenia. I actually come from Russia. 
I'm a HBS admit, and I only actually flew in last night, and <laughs> I just wanted maybe to, <laughs> to take the discussion to it like a higher level. Uh, so taking into consideration all the political and economic problems just discussed, how sustainable do you actually see the whole Putin's regime? And I'm probably wondering not only about your personal opinion, but also about the, in general, whatever opinion you would have in the United States about how sustainable the whole system, the whole thing is. Mm. Thank you. Um, I think that this is a great Simone question. <laughs> because Simone, you have a lot of different sources of information that you analyze what's going on in Russia. Um, so the sustainability of the Putin, well, you could use the word regime, but let's call it the Putin presidency, the leadership of Putin. I'd say it's fairly um, sustainable. It has showed how resilient it is uh, in the past two years. If you look uh, what was happening two years ago, mass protests, Russia losing Syria, you could list a number of problems. Today, Assad is not going anywhere. Uh, protests have subsided. And Putin feels so confident that he can release Khodorkovsky and allow Navalny to run for Moscow's mayor's office. But that said, there are, of course, longer-term trends that are not favorable. And that includes economic stagnation, Russia's economy has grown by a paltry 1.2%, I think, last year. A shrinking of the working force, even though the depopulation has stopped, but working force is projected to shrink by at least 10 million in the next several years. General backwardness of the Russian economy. Then uh, the decreasing quality of the human capital insurgency in the North Caucasus, lack of diversification, dependence on exports of commodities that Russia cannot influence, prices on which Russia cannot influence. These are all longer term trends. Dominance of state uh, in the economy. These are all longer term trends that will continue to sap Putin's ability to rule if he wants to stay for the fourth term and then maybe let someone else come in and then come back again. I don't know. But what I see is that the longer term trends are negative and it will take someone with strong political will, not just capabilities, to try to reverse. And I don't think too many rulers that late in their rule try to make drastic decisions. So therefore I see futures pretty bleak for Putin's presidency in the longer term, but not currently. Now, he's the king of the mountain, he's hosting the Olympics, protests have subsided, and so on and so on. You can list his foreign policy uh, achievements that uh, you know even the American side has to acknowledge. Now everything looks more or less rosy. Hmm. Alexander, this is your area of expertise, so what's your view? Well, I, th I think if we look back and think about what, what holds the system together, right? It's not really kind of the formal institutions of elections or courts or constitutions or anything like that. It's really a, a system of patron-client relations with Putin at the top of a big pyramid of patrons and sub-patrons um, and very few competing networks that could perhaps take over. He's, he's taking care of the oligarchs. He's taking care of the regional political machines that came under Yeltsin. And now the system kind of holds together because the expectations of the elite and the people within this pyramid that Putin is still going to be the one on top. So if you accept this kind of argument, then you think the things that could destabilize this would be anything that would change the expectations of the people who continue to support him because it's very expensive to support someone else and, and make a mistake. Right? There's what we call the collective action problem, that the elites won't jump unless they're pretty confident. So if you look at what's happened in the uh, Eurasia in these former Soviet states, you have these situations where you have these, these pyramids of patron-client relations, and the most dangerous moments for the leaders come either in the succession period, because they're coming to end of their, of their term limits, or maybe they're a lame duck, which would suggest that for Putin, if he runs in, in 2018, at that point you start expecting a lot of instability, because everyone is going to be looking out to see who's coming after those six years are finished. Uh, the other thing that can happen is, is some miscalculation or something that changes the underlying popular support that Putin obviously has. 
So this would be the economic slowdown that gets worse and that generally starts affecting people, affecting the ability to, uh, to index pensions, for example. Um, you could have a miscalculation in terms of a policy, like the attempt to monetize some of the social benefits, which created huge protests. And if that would happen, and all of a sudden people looked around and realized that, that Putin actually wasn't as great a leader as they think he is, and he does seem to be genuinely able to win elections and be popular, then you would have expectations change and you could expect to have a crisis. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't believe that any of the demonstrations along the lines of what we've seen in the past would be enough to force that to happen. Hmm. Uh, I think we have a few more minutes for questions. Yeah. Could we, sir, could we? Okay, thank you. My name is David Samuelson. I study public administration here at the Kennedy School. Uh, my question is about the military rearmament of Russia that has happened over the last years combined with Putin's more aggressive foreign policy. And uh, how do you regard that uh, from the view of outside of Russia? Um, I, I live in Sweden, a small country close to, the, close to Russia that has lived in the, like the, um, in the shadow of Russia for, for centuries. And, and uh, there, of course, uh, there is always a big discussion on, on what you see of different signs of how, how assertive and strong Russia is, is in the foreign policy. Kevin. So uh, a couple of facts. Um, first of all, Sweden at one time beat Russia up in that in that realm, right? So you got to so uh, the second thing is that uh, I think the uh, the military budget for Russia and their and their military wants to be about 1.2 million people uh, in uniform, and ours is maybe about that too, uh, and. Uh, and so our budget is somewhere around $700 billion, according to CIPRI out of Stockholm. And I think the Russian budget in that same book was listed at $72 billion, so about 10 times less than the United States budget. Um, so in terms of, uh, in terms of a, a threat to countries uh, that are, are not on immediately on Russia's border, in other words, close by, I would say the Russian military is, is not a, an external threat, especially to Sweden, which is a whole country over, um, or to the United States, the only exception being the nuclear weapons, right? So if you discount that, if you say we're not gonna have a nuclear war, then so as a threat, so, so the spending to me is not, is not a sign of a threat that Russia is to me. The spending uh, is an attempt by Russia to try and, and professionalize its military, to get it back up on its off its knees, basically. Uh, and they have had some slow progress in this regard. Um, but uh, they, uh, it may sound a little odd coming from me, they need to spend this money on their military. They need a more professional military because a country that does not feel secure with its, uh, because of its military acts as an insecure, individual would, and, and that's not good when you're trying to deal with them. They need a stronger mm -hmm. conventional military. So I, I applaud their increased military budget, I, as long as they spend it properly <laughs> and don't, you know, it doesn't go to, into corruption and so on and so forth. Kevin, I want you to tweet that in Washington. Okay. I want you to <laughs> write in on buildings and see what happens. <laughs> uh, thank you. Sir, did you have a question? Hi, my name is John and I'm from the Kennedy School. Oftentimes in American politics, the urgent trumps the important. And right now in Sochi, there's nothing more urgent than the Olympics. But I wonder what's gonna happen after the party's over. What do you think that Putin or greater Russia will be focusing on after the Olympics? Mm. That is a question that a lot of people are asking. Simon, why don't you kick us off? Because th this really, there is that theory that, you know, under the spotlight, as Alexandra said, He's released Khodorkovsky and others. Everything is looking rosy, and the cameras will leave, and in the darkness, bad things will happen. Do you agree with that? I don't think there'll be darkness. Russia is going to host the World Soccer Cup in 2018. <laughs> so cameras will be back, and not just to Sochi, but all over the European part of Russia. Well, I sort of uh, touched upon this earlier. In the immediate aftermath, will be looking in an effort to capitalize on the infrastructure that Russia has built, to link it to other parts of the area, to build this tourism cluster that would hopefully attract up to four million 
tourists a year and create 160,000 jobs, which Russia, again, needs to diversify its economy. But there are, of course, bigger issues. And um, domestically, the biggest issue is economy. Russia's economy has been stagnating. Russia's central bank chairman has spoken of stagflation. Russia is in need of systemic fundamental reforms that reverse some of the adverse trends we've seen in Russia, including increase of the state's share in GDP. I'd say Putin has been trying <coughs> already to reverse the situation, and I expect him to, to do more in that, in that sphere. In terms of security, I'd like to underscore that you know, insurgency doesn't end with the end of Sochi games. There's what Russians call Partizanskaya Vaina, guerrilla war going on in the North Caucasus. Um, the number of security officers killed in the North Caucasus, in Russia, in the North Caucasus last year was 160. That's only 30 more than the number of personnel killed in Afghanistan of the NATO-led mission there. So it's a huge problem, and Russia would have to deal with that. It won't go away. And in terms of foreign policy, you know, there are immediate challenges, continuing to try to facilitate a peaceful resolution of the Syrian civil war, Iran's nuclear program, but also to try to mend fences with the United States, because you cannot be on bad terms with a superpower indefinitely. And hopefully uh, the sideline, the bilateral meeting that uh, the two sides are now discussing to hold in June, again in Sochi, would help to address that. Sir, um, I'm Alex Ayafreda. I'm a junior at the college uh, studying economics and uh, pursuing a secondary in Russian studies. Um, a few days ago, Ambassador McFaul announced that he would be stepping down after the Olympics. Uh, what are the implications for U.S.-Russian relations, and can we speculate as to a successor? Thank you. Mm. Uh, it sounds like a question for Kevin, and I just would add I've been following a lot of that because I know the ambassador and the, uh, the Twitter world, social media have been really burning up. You probably saw that. Um, but, but both Russians and Americans talking about the significance of Ambassador McFaul leaving. He's a, an academic by trade um, from Stanford, and he was very well known, as we all know, for uh, his work in describing and writing about color revolutions. And that was one of the issues that complicated his arrival in <coughs> Moscow as ambassador. But Kevin, what would you say? So I think in terms of uh, his stepping down, affecting U.S.-Russian relations, again, not, not going to be a big factor. Uh, I mean, the ambassador can be an important uh, person in facilitating those relations. But um, you know, McFall, uh, Ambassador McFall uh, had a very rocky time. Uh, if you're a proponent of the things that he championed, like uh, uh, human rights and, uh, uh, and uh, um, let's say, democracy building and so on, then you think he did a good job and he broke a few dishes in the china shop and that was the way it was supposed to be. And, but if you were a, uh, maybe a career diplomat or somebody who just wanted you know, the U.S. and Russia to get along so that we could do other things, uh, maybe that you thought were more important, then you thought McFaul was not necessarily helpful to that uh, cause. Um, but at, at the end of the day, I think he did a, he did a, a commendable job in, in, in his time there. Uh, and I have no idea who uh, the replacement is going to be. Um, you know, typically for these things, you either want a career diplomat who understands Russia and then therefore does a great job leading a diplomatic mission, or you need somebody who's very close to the president. In other words, somebody who can be a direct line uh, from Putin, Lavrov, and so on, back to the president. McFaul was in that second category. Uh, maybe Obama will go with the first category this time. Who knows? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you have an opinion? Well, have I'm you heard a rumor? Washington. I'm not a Washington <laughs> insider, <laughs> but I've read in, in uh, Western press, actually in foreign policies, cable um, news portal, that Rose Gottmiller 
reacting under Secretary of State is uh, one candidate. I agree with Kevin, it, it would be better if the next ambassador is a Korean diplomat, but there are conflicting reports. Foreign policy says it might be Rose Goethe Müller, but actually if you look at Russian uh, segment of Twitter, the picture that is tweeting is that of Steven Seagal. <laughs> I mean, he's on very good relations with the Russian leadership, and you know, he can be the next ambassador according to the Russian Twitter. Well, that's why you can't trust social media, <laughs> Simone. Um, Alexandra, as long as we're taking bets here, we could make some money. What do you think? I, I would agree, actually, with both uh, Simeon and Kevin that it's very likely to be a career diplomat, um, if only because uh, for bureaucratic reasons, you need every once in a while people to come in and sort of follow the standard operating procedures in an organization. And I think one of the things that made McFall both um, kind of uh, entrepreneurial in terms of Russia also made it difficult for him to work with the established State Department uh, bureaucracy and that there needs to be a sort of internal reset in order for them to work as effectively as they can in Russia. I'll just put a plug in for Ro Rose Gottmuller because <laughs> I'm a huge fan of hers. Um, she's the person who really negotiated the new START treaty. She is a super brain when it comes to, and Kevin, this is your daily book, so <laughs> I, I don't know whether you agree I or agree not. I agree 100%. She's, she's really quite impressive on anything that deals with uh, nuclear issues, disarmament, et cetera. So, she knows her stuff. The, I think maybe one of the best uh, compliments she ever got was, was, uh, and I, I don't know the exact name of the Russian counterpart, but uh, as she was coming back, she had uh, run the uh, Carnegie office mm. in Moscow too, and, but as she was coming back from the State Department, one of the Russian uh, diplomats was talking about uh, who's leading the U.S. delegation, and somebody said Rose Godmiller, and, and he turned to his colleagues and said, we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> And, and actually, I, I think one great thing about Rose Gottmiller and people behind the scenes, but especially Rose, they have very good relations with good people in Russia who want to do things that protect people around the world. I mean, when you look at uh, arms control and the New START agreement, there are people in Russia who wanted those agreements just as much as some Americans did. And she was able to work very successfully and cooperatively with people like that. Uh, do we have any more quick questions here? Um, if not, I guess we, we're finished. I, I just want to say a big uh, thanks to everybody on our panel, Simone, Alexandra, Kevin, and also to urge you to watch the opening of the Olympics because I do think, I've seen some pictures, at least one picture, from somebody who was in there at the rehearsal and it's going to be a mind-boggling extravaganza with reportedly 800 dancers and incredible images. Um, so I would urge you to tune in. It will, will be pretty impressive. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.